0: So one of the questions that often has come up around our recent publication of our book, and PS, if you haven't gotten your copy yet, what are you waiting for exactly? (laughs) But anyway, no pressure, I digress. So one of those questions is what it was like to write this book during the end of 2020. And one of the things that always sticks out to me when thinking about that question is that the problems, the racism, The treatment of non-white people in this country that we wrote about in great detail throughout that book didn't get fixed in 2020, nor has it gotten fixed in 2021. In fact, every single chapter that we wrote in the second and third sections of our book has reoccurred numerous times over since we wrote the book. That is to say, we're not in some post-racial world here. And we didn't fix racism because people suddenly realized that it was still happening sometime in the summer of 2020.
1: Right? So true. And our next guest knows that all too well. Tamra Winfrey Harris wrote, The Sisters Are All Right in 2015. And she just released a second edition to the book this year. And that's not because racism is over or that we figured out intersectional feminism or that we're even all on the same page. If you've listened to this show Ever before, you know that that is not the case at all. So, the second edition includes so much more information about the stereotypes and experiences of Black women in America, what we need to know when it comes to intersectional feminism, interracial friendships, and really just coexisting with and respecting everyone, period. It is a book not just for Black women, but for everybody to read to understand this very significant portion of our country's population. And in the end, the sisters are all right. But that doesn't mean that we don't have a ton of work to do. So start by listening in and reflecting on your own perceptions, experiences, and really think about things you can do differently. Welcome to the Dear White Women Podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. We are your biracial hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. And P.S., remember that book me, Sasha mentioned, you know, our book, Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism. One of the best ways you can show our support is by clicking the write a review button on Amazon and leaving some words of support over there. Tamara, we're so excited to talk to you. Would you please introduce yourself for our audience?
2: I am Tamara Winfrey Harris, and I'm a writer who focuses on the intersection of race and gender. And I am the author of Dear Black Girl, Letters from Your Sisters on Stepping into Your Power, which came out earlier this year. And The Sisters Are All Right, Changing the Broken Narrative of Black Women in America, the second edition of which came out on August 12th.
1: (laughs) So a lot of focus on Black womanhood and Black girls. And we've talked about these stereotypes on the show before, but one of the things, especially in the re-upped version of your book, you really talk about is some of the stereotypes that society has of Black women. You know, the servile mammy, Mm -hmm. the angry sapphire, the lascivious Jezebel. Could we revisit them for our listeners' sake? And can we talk also about current day examples of how these stereotypes are showing up in our real world so we can sort of level set the playing field for everyone listening?
2: Definitely. So there are four core stereotypes of Black women that I certainly did not come up with. Other people have written uh, better than I have about them. And most of them are rooted in like antebellum America, right? So How do you make enslavement of women conscionable? You have to kind of strip away their humanity. So this idea of Black women as hypersexual, so Jezebel, arose because, you know, you have to be able to justify using women to breed new human property, right? Rape them. The idea of Black women is somehow like harder and more masculine and more resilient, sort of like Beasts of burden kind of arose because if you're working black women and working them alongside men and you're using them to do hard work, you know, you can't think of them as, you know, many people thought of white women at the time as being like pure and delicate and in need of protection, which was also sexist, I should point out. And then there's the idea that, you know, Black women are born to serve, which is kind of with no needs or desires of their own, which was the mammy stereotype, because, you know, Black women were to care for other people's families while not caring for their own. So if their husbands were killed or sold away or their children. And then in about the middle of the 20th century, mid-60s, the Moynihan Report was released by the government. Um, And the takeaway from that in the same year, like this is before the Civil Rights Act passed. So my paternal grandparents in Mississippi still couldn't vote. That's a report that said, you know, the real problem with the Black community is that Black women are the heads of households and that Black men aren't in their rightful place as the heads of households. And so those four stereotypes have shaped, you know, how the government sees Black women, how the healthcare system sees Black women, how employers are potential partners, all of that, even to this day. So when you look at an issue like healthcare, and you look at high rates of infant and maternal mortality, and you see that some of the issues are because doctors don't listen to Black women when they say they're sick and they need help, because there's this idea that we're strong, and we can survive any kind of physical and mental pain. There's an idea, you know, our motherhood doesn't have this gauzy sanctity that sometimes white motherhood has. So, you know, our babies are not precious, and our motherhood isn't precious. Sometimes, you know, Black mothers who are single are denigrated because they must have chased their partners away. So those same stereotypes that were kind of forged by people who hated us and needed us to be Greece for the, you know, country's economic engine have then colored how people continue to see us 400 years later.
0: When I was reading this book, how you broke those stereotypes out was so helpful, I think, and especially just now how you've been talking about the evolution of them, because I think a lot of what is lost is the history of, you know, how these came about, because people sort of blindly accept what has been always told to them or what we didn't learn in school let's say i want to talk to you a little bit about the second edition too because you know you mentioned that it just came out and i also loved how you framed why you wrote the second edition so i was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit because i think it talks to the stereotypes that you just mentioned some of the very current evolutions of those like blackfishing, digital blackface. And then of course I was thinking about Megan Thee Stallion and Cardi B from last summer.
2: So, you know, I wanted to write a new edition because so much has changed for women and for black women over the last six years. And we have our first black biracial woman as vice president of the United States. Like that's a huge deal. But even as the, Rihanna's a billionaire, woo! So even as these wonderful things are happening, you know, they're still like better does not mean perfect and it doesn't mean free, right? So, you know, you look at something like Kamala Harris being in the White House, but then you also look at how the media talks about her sometimes. And it is, she slept her way to the top, so Jezebel, She's too aggressive when she's on the Senate floor or when she was debating Joe Biden. Or you look at the fact that people weren't really interested in her as the Democratic nominee herself. But when Joe Biden got the nomination, everyone was like, you know what would be great as a sidekick to the white man who we've chosen to be our nominee? A Black woman. So someone go get Stacey Abrams or Kamala Harris. So, you know, that has followed along. And then you look at the way people view like Megan Thee Stallion and Cardi B. And part of it is just plain sexism because, you know, women are never allowed to be as sexually free as men are. But then you have that added layer of, you know, Black women positioned as being especially hypersexual and then Cardi and Megan being held up as C, they are what we said they were.
1: I want to pause and sort of ask, certainly our listeners, just to think about how these stereotypes might have played out in their own perceptions of the Black women in our communities. Because what I love is how you conclude that you are not those stereotypes or not just them, right? And that Black women are all and none of these things. And I think you wrote this beautiful line, Black women are humans with all the complexity that that implies. Black women have facets like diamonds. The trouble is the people who refuse to see us sparkling. And I think the way that you described the idea of telling stories about ourselves to ourselves, you know, I think there's some element of shared experience, Misasha and I both being biracial, Japanese, daughters of immigrants, and then a daughter also of a white parent each, you know, that shared history or the shared experiences and telling stories within our communities is really powerful. And I also noticed when you talk about connecting with ancestors and drawing inspiration from the women who came before us and how that actually plays a tremendous part and this was the shocking part to me: why 67 percent of black women say they have high self-esteem, which is in stark contrast with, like what you said was, 41 percent of average or thin-sized white women have high self-esteem. So I guess when I thought about all of this in context and this idea of connection with each other and with our ancestry, and how that might play a part in how we see ourselves, and that's why it leads to my next question, because there's a great quote from a woman named Jessica that you reference in your book. And it says, if I don't speak up for someone who has accessibility needs, then that can also impact my freedom. People will see that we're allowing for violence to be done against those most marginalized groups. And they'll just continue to notch it up until it comes to our door. We have to be vocal about the ills that are happening to our most marginalized people. And so what would you want to say, for example, to white women and how they can best support black women? And do you also think white women can be allies?
2: They can be. They definitely can be. I think the first part is, you know, whenever you talk about feminism, everyone wants to go to, we're all women, so let's just focus on how we're all women and just don't talk about those other things that separate us. But the problem is then that requires Black women and Latinx women and Asian women and Native women to check part of themselves at the door. So we're all affected by sexism, but... It affects us differently based on our intersecting identities. So we can start with our commonality, but we have to move with to our unique stories. So the first step to anyone that wants to be an ally to Black women is to listen to us and listen to us when we talk about our lived reality and to let go of the biases that you've kind of been fed over time, the lies that you've been fed over time, and listen to us when we talk about what's really happening something just popped in my mind. Like I'd love to talk to Kamala Harris about as a Black and Asian woman, how she moves and holding both of those stereotypes that are the opposite of each other. So like, are you too submissive? Or are you too aggressive? Which one are you today when you are both in the same person? That's why it's so you know, important for us to listen to each other's stories.
1: And we talk about that all the time, about the importance of listening to the stories, because I think in various iterations of our identities also, Misasha and I have been told or expected to be the submissive Asian person or like, oh, you're a very outspoken woman, considering that you're a woman or these sorts of things. And I wonder, you know, with this idea of intersectionality, because Misasha and I have been coming into corporations and discussing this idea recently, How do we help people understand the experience of being told you are a certain thing so that we don't keep doing that to other people?
2: I think, you know, I think it's important for allies to think about how it feels for someone to tell you who you are, especially if that doesn't feel like who you actually are. Melissa Harris Perry in her book, Sister Citizen, I I love the way she described it because she said it's like being in a crooked room. So you're in this crooked room and you're standing in front of a fun house mirror and you have to write yourself, but you have to write yourself while having this like warped image reflect back to you. So it's like, how do I stand up straight? And so think about for a moment, how that feels. Think about always having someone tell you who you are not listen to who you are and having that who you are always be positioned as negative. And I think that's an experience that all women and all potential allies need to sit in if they want to be supportive of Black women. And to not minimize that, because there have been a few recent over the last few years, like there have been roundtables of actresses where you know a black actress talks about, I believe it was Viola Davis in one of those roundtables, and she talked about being viewed as not attractive in Hollywood. And there was a you know a white actress that swooped in to say, "No, you're beautiful. Don't feel that way about yourself. Don't. You know we have to let ourselves <laughs> sit in the mess and sit in the." mess that America has created for us and listen and be supportive and not be quick to step on it and be defensive and try to erase it, but really understand what the long-term effects are.
1: Yeah. I like that a lot because we talk about, we need to listen, right? We have to take, slow down our society enough that we can take time to actually remember that every single person is an individual and we are not, much as it's convenient for government statistics or whatever, we are not to be swept up into these groupings that are basically artificially created at the end of the day. Yes. But I liked what you said in particular about, because I've seen some conversations on social media being like, can white people truly be allies? What does that role look like? And I think one of the things you just said was, and I know white women can be, but when we talk about You know, you just said, like, slow down, listen, don't step on it. What are other things that, aside from listening, that people can do differently?
2: First of all, what you don't get to do is claim yourself as an ally. It's like, I'll tell you. (laughs) I'll tell you when you're my ally. (laughs) So that's not an identity we can claim for ourselves, but it is something we can strive for, right? Right. So I think listening, I think I actually wrote an article for The Cut, you know, back at the beginning of the Trump presidency about the real work of being an ally. And so I talked to people who considered themselves allies to ask them, what was allyship? And they said, you know, the first thing is educating yourself, which is what we've been talking about. You have to understand what it feels like to move through the world as a person who is other you know, positioned as other to listen and then realize that you've been conditioned not to believe uh, marginalized people when they talk about their own experiences. So you have to do the work of learning to believe people when they, Black women, when we talk about our actual experiences, realize that there's a cost to allyship. So determining what it is that you might have to lose. You know, some of the allies that I talked to In particular, men, which I thought was interesting, said, I've lost the camaraderie of being with other men because they said, I'm the guy that won't let the sexist joke about women pass. And that takes away some of the camaraderie because that's part of life in patriarchy. So I think those are two really, really important parts of allyship.
0: I think that's really important because I think that conversation, especially about giving up something, right, or that exchange is something that is a struggle for people because, right, that's why performative allyship is such a, you know, you put your, you know, your one Instagram post and you're like, done, ally. But, you know, you're not, and this is a conversation we have in my house a lot, right, like in allyship, in being kind, right, like if we're truly being kind, kindness requires like that you give up something But in the end, it should be just more for all of us, right? The concept of that abundance and that we're, you know, there is not this finite pie, right? That we are, you know, taking parts away from. And And that's been such a barrier, I feel like, for so many people in this conversation, that it's this loss that we're not willing to really go there yet.
2: And because it's active, because we don't want to feel like, like we miss, we don't understand that allyship is an active thing. It's not thinking passive good thoughts or like, behold, my safety pin. Like it's actually doing the work and speaking up. And it's hard to be uncomfortable. It's hard to be the person who says, no, that's not right. Don't say that about black women. Don't say that about trans people It's hard to be that person in your friend group and in your family. And that's why there, you know, even though many people say they are allies, there are far fewer people who are actually allies.
1: I love that you just said that because we just launched a merchandise store with the launch of the book. And one of the tank tops is allyship is a verb. Yes. Because it's like, it is, it's this action. And we've been talking, especially heading into the holiday season about this idea that like, we can speak up, when that racist uncle says something at the holiday table and makes an off-color joke or an inappropriate comment, we can interrupt with, what do you mean by that? Like, that is what it takes to risk our social capital, for example, as one way that it might be a risky thing. But it's not really, because it's standing up for fellow humans and it's what the right thing is.
2: Yes, and you can do it in big and small ways. Like some of the people I talked to, you know, there was a woman and she's like, I would love to be the person like marching in the streets and, but I'm really not that person. I got kids. I got a job. Like I'm not that person, but I can do things in small, in her way. She was a straight woman who, you know, in her Catholic faith and faith Sunday school made sure to include the stories of queer people. And she's like, and that, that's what I do. Like, I feel like my job, she was Catholic was to work within my faith, to call out you know, the ways that queer people are marginalized. That's what I do. And when I'm reading to kids at Sunday school, I make sure to talk about kids with two mommies or two daddies. Like there is always a way that you can be active in your allyship, even if you aren't marching in the streets.
0: So I wanted to go back to the motherhood part in the book I really loved you starting with Michelle Obama and the mom-in-chief comment, because I remember that so clearly. Sarah and I talk a lot about being parents, and for me, having sons who are Black, Japanese, and white, like this is you know something that I think about, but I don't have that added layer of being a Black mother on top of that. So I would love for you to talk a little bit about that, in particular, the mom-in-chief, because I loved how you said it was
2: actually an act of resistance. So a lot so some of your listeners may remember when, you know, Michelle Obama made the comment that her she felt like her most important role, you know, when they first entered the White House was being mom in chief to her girls, you know, and then a lot of feminists, mostly white feminists kind of pushed back and said, no, you're, you're this accomplished woman, you're a Harvard grad. Bre- like, how could you say that you're setting women back? but that was like a misperception of the role that motherhood, or not the role that motherhood plays, it's more how women are viewed as mothers differently. Um, And the fact that, you know, black motherhood attracts none of the gauzy sanctity that white motherhood does. You know, one of the women in the chapter on motherhood says that people don't think black mothers are intentional. They don't think they're loving. It's almost like we're back 400 years ago And people think that for us, having kids is just some kind of biological imperative. And so the fact and how you often don't see Black families held up is the idea of the American family. And so for many of us, seeing Barack and Michelle and their kids together was like, oh my gosh, I looked at them and I was like, that's my family. That like, that's how I grew up. And you saw the little Obama girls and their hair would get fuzzy, like black girl hair gets fuzzy. And like, you, you don't see in family portraits. And that felt good and warm and revolutionary for lots of us who hadn't seen our families and or our motherhood portrayed in that loving way.
1: I love that because I've seen some social media accounts, which, you know, there are people in this country who don't get to meet people of different races by the way the communities are set up in certain parts. But this is when technology can be good. Like, I love the Black Man Can or like certain platforms that work to give people a view into the humanity of people's relationships and the love that Black fathers have for their children. And I would challenge anybody who doesn't have friends who look different than them, to go and look at those social media accounts, follow them and challenge this perception that you might have if you're really, really honest with yourself about what that looks like. Like you said, what Black motherhood might look like. And just a plug for a friend of ours, like Shanisha Boswell has the Black Moms blog, which was revolutionary when she started it because as she said, motherhood has for so long also been centered on white motherhood and not really telling the stories of Black motherhood too.
2: There's a a good friend of mine, Disha Filia, wrote this wonderful article for Bitch Magazine many years ago, but I still recommend it and still read it. It was called Ain't I a Mommy? And, you know, she talks about how she was working as a writer and a stay-at-home mom. Like there were no resources of anyone talking about her because there was an assumption that all stay-at-home mothers were white women and that she didn't exist. And all of the new mommy blogs and all of these books about mommy wars seem to have nothing to do with her experience as a Black mother.
1: Absolutely. You know, on this line of this idea of relationships, and I wonder what your thoughts were about interracial friendships, female friendships in particular, because I still remember in one of our neighborhood conversations, where we were talking about race, one of the black women said, look, I do all the things. I'm at my kid's school. I'm on the PTA. I run the Girl Scouts. I do all the things, but I'm not invited to the book clubs. I'm not invited to these events that are happening in our predominantly white community. It's like I'm seen as a little bit more invisible, even though I'm doing all the nice, smiley, happy things. And I think we've been privileged enough to have a lot of
2: conversations
1: on our show about these idea of interracial friendships. But like, what do you think about?
2: It? I think it's funny that she said that because you could look back at Michelle Obama and how even though I would say she's probably one of the more accessible first ladies we've ever had, that you know people would talk about her being mean and radical. Meanwhile, she's dancing with Ellen and hula hooping and planting things in the garden. So that's another example of how these images of us put this wall between us and other people and disrupt the intimacy that we can have between each other as women. And it also shows the way that some women are penalized. Like, you know, there's some women who perhaps grew up in like mixed neighborhoods as, as I did and who are able to code switch in ways that make me feel comfortable and a, probably appear comfortable, you know, in mixed company. And so non-Black women are comfortable and women who can't do that. And so can't have those relationships. But I think those relationships are critical to us being allies in smashing the patriarchy together. <laughs> I love
1: that. What other questions have we not asked that you think are really important to discuss?
2: Well, you know, one thing I hope your listeners know is this book isn't just for Black women. For some of the reasons that we said, it, one, I think it's important for other women to learn about us and our experiences and hear them. Um, but also because some of our experiences are human experiences and some of our experiences are women's experiences. And I hope, and I think that women who are not black will also see themselves in some of the things that they read. You know, we all face beauty pressure. You know, we all have to have a thigh gap or a thigh crease or whatever it is, but not but, whatever it is at the moment, (laughs) you know, we all struggle with motherhood. We like, we all struggle with some of these issues. So I think the book is for all women. I hope all women will enjoy it.
1: I did. I felt like I left with hope and it was this, I love that you ended with, there's all of this stuff and black women are all right. Like we are okay. And we need all of us in this conversation. So I appreciate that very, very much.
0: Thank you. I agree, that was so powerful. It was, I agree 100%, a book that really all women I think should be reading because it is fundamental and also men, but especially if you're thinking about this sisterhood and how do we find true sisterhood, right, not just sisterhood that, you know, represents part of our women, right? Where can people find you?
2: TamaraWinfreyHarris.com. You can follow me on Twitter at what Tammy said, T A M I, and on Instagram as Tamara Winfrey Harris. And I can't wait to read your book. I'm going to go get it now. Uh,
1: thank you so much. <laughs> <Thank hard>. you. <laughs> You're still here learning how to uproot systemic racism one conversation at a time. Our fresh news we have a brand new book that's available for pre order. So find us on bookshop.org at Dear White Women and order. And then make sure you follow the Dear White Women podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts so you can keep getting the newest episodes each Wednesday. And don't forget to rate and review us as you share our show with your friends. Follow us on Instagram at Dear White Women podcast and Twitter at DWW podcast. And if you love us, support our Patreon or look for ways you can bring us into your place of employment or circle of influence for a talk or ask us about our webinars and consulting work. Thanks for being here.